Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you for tuning in with us this morning. I have decided in honor of the first day of fall and because just a few minutes ago I saw my first leaves that had changed this fall and um, thanking God for that, that I would preach in a hoodie because it seemed like the right thing to do. So here we go. Uh, just one real announcement. We took that survey this week about gathering inside and about two thirds of you were ready to give that a shot. And so uh, we're going to do that. Likely October 11th. We're not 100% on that yet, but that's what we're looking at. And um, we will do that socially distanced. I'm going to need a few uh, folks to volunteer to help um, do some greeting and usher people in and out. We'll have two doors open and, and uh, be as safe as we can be. And we'll see how that goes. If we come away from that thinking, yeah, that was a little sketchy, then we won't do it again. Um, but we're going to, we feel good about that right now. And so we're going to go ahead with that. Um, the outdoor services have been great. It's been great to gather together again. Uh, we had new folks last week and it just highlights to me like people have moved into town and are looking for a church and people are searching like the all that's gone on has served to highlight our emptiness and has taken away some of the things that are not great that we use to fill that emptiness and so people are looking for something good to fill it and so just be praying for the people around you and that God would use you and use your church um you know to to reach them and so that's what we want to do as a church and um, as I said, that we're gonna we're gonna be doing that inside, and if it doesn't work out, then uh, we'll pivot and we'll do something else. So uh, know that we are in the third week in a series called Peter and Every Man's Guide to Spiritual Formation, and it's really taken a look at some scenes from the life of the disciple Peter um, to to show us a bit about what it looks like to mature in our faith in Jesus and to grow in that relationship. With Jesus and last week I talked about a marathon compared it to a marathon and so um, it's helpful to know when you're going on a marathon what the route is and where you are in it and I talked about having this three mile uphill that I didn't realize was there and I would have done a lot better had I known <laughs> that had I paid more attention to the route and so as much as we can we're going to try and discern that and help you understand where you are on the map and where other people uh, are, are that are around you are on that map so you can help them and shepherd them as they grow in Christ. So last week was stage one, the recognition of God and how usually through need or through a sense of awe, we come to a place where we recognize not just that God exists, but he really matters in our day-to-day -day life. Um, and stage two is, they refer to it as the life of discipleship and just this initial stage of really growth in the gospel and in understanding uh, Jesus. So in, I'm gonna go through a scene and it comes about two years after the scene from last week where Peter you know, really declares his faith in Jesus and, and starts going. And so in these two years, Peter and the other disciples, Peter and the boys, but also the girls start following Jesus around everywhere he goes. And it's not just guys, it's girls. There are great passages in the gospels that talk about how important women were in the ministry of Jesus, which was totally countercultural for his day. It says actually that women funded the ministry of Jesus. And so one of them was Herod, who's like the, the king of Israel or that part of Israel in that day, Herod's household manager's wife. So his household manager, that's a big job. And his that guy's wife was in the Jesus group, you know? 
And she was a big funder and probably had funds to fund the ministry. So all these folks are going around, they're going with Jesus, they're seeing Jesus um, do these miracles and just getting blown away time and again by the things that Jesus can do. And they're hearing Jesus teach. And Jesus' teaching is revolutionizing the way they understand God and their religion, the Jewish religion. And you've heard it said, but I say to you, and how they understand themselves and how they understand their relationships with the people around them and their stuff and with everything in their life. It's revolutionizing them. And they're seeing people um, come and go in the Jesus movement. I mean, they're around Jesus, so they, they, know, they know Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of God's nature. And so they're around that for these two years that, you know, in the interim time period, but then they see people come and they see people go and, you know, for various reasons. And so there's gotta be some tight sense of community around these early followers of Jesus. And so that's the context. And this story um, comes after a really familiar story, but what I'm gonna preach is a little bit less familiar. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a pretty familiar Bible story. Jesus um, goes out and he teaches and a big crowd of people follows him and it gets to the end of the day and they're like the Hardee's isn't open, whatever it is, you know, and so they got no place to go to eat. And Jesus says to his disciples, well, you feed him. And they're like, how are we going to do that? So they found some kid that's got some bread and some fish and Jesus multiplies it and he feeds not five, probably 10, 15,000 people um, feeds them and everyone's just blown away by what happens. Well, right after that, Jesus' disciples, that night, they decide they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee, and they ask Jesus, hey, you want to come with us in the boat? And Jesus say, hey, I'll catch up with you guys later. I'm going to go off and pray. I'm going to spend some time with my father. And so he does that, and as they're crossing the sea, there's a, um, a storm hits. And so they're scared that the boat's going to sink, and Jesus walks on the water and comes into the boat, and he's like, hey, what are you guys freaking out about? And it's like, well, it was the storm, but now we're freaking out about the fact that you just walked on the water into our boat. And so Jesus and the guys and girls go to the other side of the lake. Well, the next morning, the people, the, the 10, 15,000 people that he fed, you know, wake up, and they're like, oh, man, hungry time for breakfast where'd that jesus fella go you know and so they're figuring out where their next meal is going to come from so they go around the lake they walk around the lake and this picks up john chapter 6 verse 25 it says that the crowd found him on the other side of the sea and they said to him rabbi when did you come here which is kind of a passive aggressive way of saying like hey funny meeting you here you know that happens sometimes and jesus answers them and says truly truly i say to you and when Jesus says, truly, truly, that's like, it's kind of like in our vernacular saying, I'm serious as a heart attack here. Like, I really mean this. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You are seeking me not because I did these miraculous things and you've come to understand me as divine and the son of God, but because I met a need for you. Um, and that gets to a key question that gets answered in stage two, and he is truly the Son of God. Am I following Jesus because he met a need, because he made me feel good, or am I following him because I truly believe that he's divine, that he's God? Uh, we, we come to him, again, out of a sense of awe or need, typically, you know, and there's some emotion in that, and it's right to feel emotion when you come to Jesus, when you think about Jesus, when you worship Jesus, emotion is the right thing. Uh, I remember a couple years ago preaching through the Gospel of Luke, 
And I don't remember much about that series. I, it's, my favorite gospel is Luke. Um, and, and, but I remember the first message talking about having gone through Luke and, and just seeing the first time people interact with Jesus and how much emotion there is in it and the range of emotions that people experience and being convicted as an under-emotional Midwesterner that I'm not emotional enough when it comes to Jesus. You know, so emotion is is right, but but your head has to follow your heart. And so this isn't, some of you in phase one, you come because of your head, you become intellectually convinced and your heart has to follow your head, but much of the time it's the other way and your head has to follow your heart. Your emotion has to develop into conviction. Your emotion has to develop into conviction. And so that's what he's saying. You're seeking me, not because you're convicted that I'm the son of God, but because I met a need for you. And there's a maturing that has to happen in your faith. Uh, because sometimes your faith is not going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel bad. <laughs> and then you're going to have a decision to make, you know, and God will use those times, maybe more than the times when it makes you feel good to grow you uh, as a person and as a follower of Jesus. Um, and so that's, that's got to happen in stage true. I too, I say, I say this, I've said this a bit like before about, you know, when you come to faith, your recognition of God involves repentance. When you come to faith in Jesus and so you're repenting of sin, but you really only understand like the tip of the iceberg of your sin, the 10% that's above the surface. And then you're going to find out about the 90%, but that's, that's true about Jesus too. You understand like 10% about Jesus, maybe, you know, and then you're going to learn more things about Jesus. And that's what's happening here. So he continues to these folks. He says, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to please God? What, what are we doing to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so he is starting to reshape their view of themselves and the world around them. And the, and the key to that is this, your relationship with God is not based on what you've done for him. It's not law, it's not works. It's based on what he has done for you, and that's grace. You move from law to grace, from works to grace. And and that's a hard move. And you don't even know how dependent you are on works. How do I please God? Our default answer to that is be a good person. Um, but it's that's not the gospel. And so you ask people in our culture, hey, are you going to heaven? when you die, they'll say yes. And you'll say why? I say, well, I'm a pretty good person. That's our default is to think we have to do the things and then God will accept us. That is anti-gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that we could not do enough good things to reconcile ourselves to God. God had to reconcile us to him. And he did that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died on a cross to pay consequences for our sins that we couldn't pay for ourselves. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is pointing to this one perfect sacrifice that was coming. And then Jesus rose from the dead to show us he has the power over death. We do not. We're all going to die. He has the power over death. And he is willing to give us that power. That same spirit that raised him from the dead is alive in us. You start to understand that in stage one. Like that's really what it is, getting to that place of depart from me for I'm a sinful man and accepting your need for Christ. But that that your default really is still law and has to deepen in stage two. And 
this is, you know, these are just the dynamics you start to work with. Because if we, if we can do enough things that God has to accept us because we've done the right things, then, then we're in control. We do the things, God has to accept us, and we're in control. If there's not enough good things for us to do, if he has to accept us based on his good things and not ours, in spite of the things that we've done, then he's in control. And that's hard, but that's maturity as a Christian. Grace starts to shape your reality um, in your life. You know, it starts to shape your relationships. Um, uh, you can't you can't hold a grudge against the people around you or anyone really, because God hasn't held a grudge against you. How can how can I hold something against you and not forgive you for it when God has forgiven like infinitely more towards me? And so it starts to shape all your relationships. Uh, my I can't by default say my group is better than your group, which we do this all the time. We're doing it right now all the time. It's the basis for racism. It's the basis for sexism. It's the basis for nationalism, for classism, all those isms in, in their negative whatever come from I want to feel good about myself. So I'll feel good about my group and I'll pit my group against another group and feel better about myself. Well, you can't do that because our group is screwed up in its own way. And the gospel is going to tell us that. Uh, in, in that, like identity politics doesn't really work. Um, critical race theory has problems because the way the gospel speaks into us. I can't, you start learning in this time, I can't hoard my stuff and I can't hoard my time. Um, I need to give that stuff away because all of it came from God and he wants to use the things he's given me to bless the people around me and me giving it away is going to be a blessing to myself because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we're blessed to be a blessing, and that's the message throughout the Bible, and that's how grace works. Uh, Paul says about Jesus in Corinthians, he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor could become rich, and then we follow him and we start doing the same thing. And so he calls us fundamentally to generosity, but that's risky because when I'm generous, I lose control. Because he calls us to be generous, saying, I've been generous to you. I've given you all these things, so I want you to give away the first fruits of what I've given you. But if we're going to do that, trusting that he gave it to us in the first place, then we have to continue to trust that he's going to replenish and he's going to continue to meet our needs. That's just how it works. And you start learning that stuff. Grace starts reshaping your life in stage two. I can't inflate my ego by looking at my bank account or my business card or my mirror because my value isn't found in how well I stack up against the people around me, it's found in the God who loved me enough to send his son to die on a cross for me and to rise from the dead for me. And and for everyone else that I have been competing with. You know, we're all on the same page. We're all made in the image of God. So my value is not something that's determined vertically anymore. It's determined horizontally uh, by what God has said is true about me. All that stuff starts to filter through in this stage and you start to understand it and see it it starts to change you and you realize hey i don't have to hold a grudge anymore i can be free from this i don't need my group to be better than your group i can be free from that i don't need to hoard my stuff anymore i'm free from that and i don't need to try to find ways to inflate my ego because god has told me everything i need to know about myself and that is the good news of the gospel gets even better in stage two when you accept it but it doesn't happen overnight and it's not always an easy process. You know, I I shared a bit last week about kind of some stage one stuff with me and then um, and um, just getting to this place where I really surrendered and that's the mark of stage one is surrender. Well, then I, I remember this 
like really almost vividly, and it's a long time ago now, um, I had been attending a church occasionally, and then I decided to really engage. And part of stage two is people, man. You need to find some people that are also pursuing Jesus. It makes all the difference. And you see that in the Gospels and the disciples and this group of men and women following Jesus. So I was finding my people, and I went to the Sunday school class, and then we went out to lunch afterwards, and I can still see some of the people there, and I can still remember I was dying to tell them what I did for a living because I was young and I'd started this company and things were going well and I was I thought I was kind of a big deal and my ego was wrapped up in my job and my insecurity was like assuaged by that and I wanted to tell them that so so badly and just over that next six months by the end of that six months the last thing I wanted to talk to anybody about was what I did for a living and it was maybe the most visible visible mark of how God was changing me on the inside. Um, for me because the gospel was starting to reshape my life and I had a group of people that were speaking something different into me and and for me um, I think that that time went quick because you know I was in my mid-20s and when I was in my mid-teens is when I made a profession of faith for Jesus and I probably moved into stage two and was starting to walk with him that college took me off of that path you know and I don't know if I went back to stage one or pre-stage or what happened but when I got back to stage two I was pretty quickly in stage three because I knew the things and it's kind of like they took you know um, one pastor has put it like you know sometimes with a coke machine or a snack machine you you would put the coins in but they wouldn't drop down and so you're banging on the coke machine to see, get those coins because you don't want to put more coins in and then finally they drop and then you can get the coke and that maybe God just needed to bang some stuff through in my life and then I was at this place and it took you know so this passage goes on the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven and they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And um, this, you know, this Jesus makes these seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And this is one of them. I'm the bread of life. And if I'm the bread of life, you can't live without me. He's going to say, I'm the light of the world. And so if you don't have me, you're living in darkness. Uh, I am the door to the sheep pen, and so if you don't come through me, the door, then you're not in the pen, and it's God's pen. Uh, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that leads you. I'm the resurrection of the life, and without me, you're in death. I'm the way, the life, and the truth, and he says no one comes to the Father apart from me, and I'm the true vine, you know, saying you'll wither unless you are attached to me. Those are bold statements. Those are bold statements, and they can be hard. You know, saying I'm the bread of the life is going back to, you know, what I talked about last week. So if you're not catching this, you should listen last week. But I said it felt like at the beginning of that stage, he was like a piece of the puzzle. But by the end, it's like he was the picture that the whole puzzle puts together. And that's a bit of what this is saying. Um, you got to mature and grow through this. I uh, uh, We've referenced a study a few times that came out about just basic beliefs that, that Christians hold. Uh, Dan referenced it, Ken had sent it out. And so this, this is some of the things that that study said. 68% of folks that call themselves Christians believe that having some kind of faith is more important than the particular faith with which someone aligns. That's just, this is the type of thing that Jesus is speaking into this and saying, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> it's not some kind of faith. I'm not like all the other faiths. I'm something totally different than that. Um, and, and in this study, 56% of, uh, of self-described evangelicals, and I resist that term, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but generally it's folks that believe the Bible to be authoritative. St still, 56% of Christians like that think that having some kind of faith is more important than having 
than the particular faith. Another part of that study, a slight majority of self-identified Christians think a person can attain salvation by being or doing good. And that, as I just talked about, like that's not the gospel. The gospel is he's done something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. If, if we could become, you know, reconciled to God by doing good, then why did Jesus need to die on a cross? Like the, the fundamental thing doesn't work <laughs> if that's the case. And so we're really missing out if that's what we believe. And the last and maybe the most shocking, over half of Americans and a third of evangelicals, so these are probably, think the Bible is authoritative Christians, agree with the statement that Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. I'm just going to say this. If you think Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God, you are not a biblical Christian. I, I just don't think you're a Christian because I don't know how you'd be a Christian other than a biblical Christian because the Bible tells us about Christ, you know. It, but that's just not, th those hold, don't hold together. And you and so those things you kind of bring into stage two, but you got to grow through those things in stage two. And they can be hard because they are not popular um, culturally. Uh, and I think that's similar to what Jesus is dealing with in this scene. You know, you're following me, but you don't really get it. And you need to grow into really getting it. Uh, you don't believe that I'm the son of God. I'm just meeting some needs and that's why you're here. And that's not going to last. And Jesus is gentle with them, but he gets to the point. And that the bread of life deal that he's making here is he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When they got manna in the desert, that was pointing towards Jesus. And that satisfied them temporarily and sustained them. But he is going to sustain us um, for all time. And so you got to grow in your understanding of those things. And as the church, it's our job to, to lead you into that. Now, this scene continues. Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. And so that's going to happen. There's going to be some grumbling. He said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So Jesus is wading in even further into the deep end of the pool here. And he's really talking about election. It's another set of sermons for another day, but it really matters. This is something that he has done. He said, I will raise them up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And, and then he goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, again, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven. So no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's hard. He has said in another part of this, um, this message, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And that sounds crazy, right? I mean, it's hard. And yet, when we take communion as a church on a regular basis, what are we doing? This is pointing towards that. We are, we are taking part of the body and the blood of Jesus. And we're remembering the sacrifice that he made for us. And that's what he's talking about here. And so stage two involves this radical reshaping of your understanding of life around the reality of the gospel of Jesus. And that just it takes some time and some effort um, and some and it's and some work, you know, to, to get through that stage. There's a, a book by an author I've referenced. And I don't think the quote comes from this book, but I've used the quote, Christians shouldn't count their disciples, they should weigh them. 
they should do both, you know, but, uh, but the book, the author of the quote in this book is, is a guy named Dallas Willard. So the book is The Divine Conspiracy, and, and he has a great chapter on discipleship. And so he talks about how a disciple is kind of like an apprentice, maybe in our language. And Christian isn't the best term to use. Disciple would be a, a better term. Christian was a term that was used because there were so many Jewish people, but also Gentile, non-Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. So they needed a new term, so they coined Christian. But a disciple had more weight to it. And so he says about being an apprentice, he said people who were asked whether they are an apprentice of a leading politician or a musician or a lawyer or a screenwriter, someone asks you, are you an apprentice of such? You wouldn't need to think for a second to respond to that. You know whether or not you're an apprentice. Similarly, for those asked if they're studying Spanish or bricklaying with someone unknown to the public, it's hardly something that would escape someone's attention that you are an apprentice. The same is all the more true if asked about discipleship to Jesus. Like, you know, if you're trying to become more like Jesus, if you are a disciple. But if asked whether they are good apprentices of whatever person or line of work concerned, they very well may hesitate. <laughs> Am I an apprentice? Am I a good apprentice? They might say no or yes. Ask if they could be better apprentices or students, they would probably say yes. And all of this falls squarely within the category of being a disciple or an apprentice. And he says this, for to be a disciple in an area or relationship is not to be perfect. One can be very, be a very raw and incompetent beginner and still be a disciple. A disciple is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or become what that person is. A disciple of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, I am with him by choice and by grace, by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were here. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. Right? That's, that's the life of discipleship, of apprenticeship, and that's what's starting to happen in this stage two. And in stage two, you have to be an apprentice alongside other apprentices. You join a community of believers seeking the kingdom of God in their lives, in their world. And together you are learning and you're repenting and you're serving and you're enjoying, but you're being challenged. And so in marathon terms, it's not a bad stage. You know, it's there's a lot of downhill in this stage where you're just being blown away by stuff and who Jesus is and what he means and it's fantastic. But then there's some uphills in that too. You're like, ooh, that's tough. And and you grow in conviction and you grow in maturity. And I'm gonna, the last part of this story um, with Jesus is just a fantastic scene that sticks in my head and it maybe um, best encapsulates the stage two and what happens here. It says, after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples turned back and didn't walk with him. That is kind of crushing. Um, if you're familiar with the parable of the sower, where the farmer throws the seed out and stuff starts to grow, but then for some of the seed, like the thorns choke it out or the, the roots are too shallow. And it's hard to understand what all that stuff means, but this kind of looks like that, you know, sometimes people just don't mature and it doesn't, they, they know it doesn't take. And so maybe it wasn't, you know? So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? What a scene. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, that is maturity, a maturity that has to happen and you should expect to happen and it challenges that come a lot. You should expect all those to come in this. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm here because I want to be, but I'm here because I have to be because I've become convicted that you are more than just something that makes me feel good or meets my needs, but you are the divine son of God and the only one that has the answers for me. We believed and we've come to know this because we've been following you. What a statement. And that's the type of maturity that has to happen. I will point out too, like the we matters man you need a we and you grow a we in stage two you have a group of people that become your people you need the church you need the church you need to be known you need people to speak the grace of god in your life you need people to speak to you about your sin and your gifts you need people to encourage you to exhort you and you need to begin encouraging and exhorting other people as you grow in maturity in christ I've pastored now 20 something years, pastored this church almost 14 years. And I love, I mean, the church is hard, man. The church will break your heart. And I don't, I'm not saying that as a martyr, I've broken people's hearts as a pastor that's imperfect. You know what I mean? Like the church is hard because we're difficult people sometimes, but the church is beautiful and it is amazing. And it is one pastor put it, it is that like the only organization that really has the power to change the world. It really is. Um, he said the local church is the hope of the world, and I totally believe that. And so you need the church. Um, and the church will change your life because it's a group of people that will reflect the gospel back to you and in in like healthy ways. You know, it's not good for man to be alone. We are social creatures. Uh, one of Ken, one of our elders, would say this that you are the sum of your five best friends, you know, and so it doesn't mean all your friends need to be in the church. Absolutely not. But you need some friends that are pursuing Christ and, and because it's going to shape your life. So the church matters. I'm going to finish by, by talking about how like stage two, I'm, you know, I've been following, I professed Christ 35 years ago now. Gosh, and, but, but you never move past stage two. And so just the other day, um, I was listening to a talk about evangelism and it's going to be in the weekly next week. I'm going to link this because it's one of the best talks I've ever heard. It's a British guy in London. It was fantastic, honest and relevant, um, but hopeful and all the things. But he said, he was talking at one point how we have to share God's heart for the world around us, or we probably don't really get the gospel because the whole Bible really is is the gospel. I mean, it's it's laying out the good news and it's God's heart to reconcile the world to himself and to restore us to what he created us to be. And so we have to share God's heart for the people around us. But he, he ended up saying in that, that the biggest problem with our sin is that it, it makes God angry. It makes God angry. And he started talking about the wrath of God. And I found myself thinking, oh man, angry God. An angry God is kind of a hard sell. Like, do we have to talk about that? And I just felt like God challenged me. And I thought about, I mean, I'll get back to this in a second. I thought about what's going on with Brianna Taylor and all this. And I thought about the last six months. And if you had to pick a word that best characterizes the last six months in America, you could do worse than angry. Like we are angry and we're a lot of other things, but anger is what you see uh, all the time. 
And so I thought about that, like, we're angry about masks and, and how you're angry depends on your, how you understand the facts and it's just always gonna happen. And so if you think masks don't work and the government's just trying to control us now so they control us for something else, like you're righteously angry because you don't think the masks work. If you think the mask works, then you're angry at the people that don't think the masks work because they're denying science and being selfish and not wearing masks. Or but everybody's a little bit angry in some way about that, a righteous anger. I thought about the Supreme Court and the issue of abortion, and I was having this conversation with someone earlier in the week about there's so much emotion in it, but it's really based around the question of when does life begin? And so if you believe, as I do, that life begins at conception, and I have a lot of reasons for believing that, then you think when, when we're, abortion is, is taking the life of a child. And I know I say that, I hate throwing that out there because I know like, there's situations and stories and it's hard. And I know that and if you know me for 10 seconds, you know, I have a lot of compassion towards that. And yet, like if that's the fact that life begins at conception, then, then that's taking a child. And, and so there's a reason to be angry about that. But if you don't believe life begins at conception, and I would say, if you don't believe it begins at conception, then you owe it to everybody to say when you think it does begin, but then what you're you're angry because somebody is making it is taking the right for a woman to decide what to do with her body because you don't think it's a child, then you're righteously angry about that stuff. Like people are angry based on the facts. With Brianna Taylor, holy cow, I can't believe I'm saying this. Everybody should be devastated that that she is she has died. Tragically died in just just a horrible situation, you know? How you understand what should happen and what justice looks like in that situation depends on the facts and whether the warrant was a valid warrant and whether you think that the police actually announced that they were police. Like, it's just a hard situation. And so there's anger all around that. And so I started thinking about all this anger and thought about our righteous anger and we relish in our anger and we're angry when people don't share our anger. And so we get to be angry whenever we want to, but, but when you talk about an angry God, that shuts the conversation down. So we get to be angry all we want, but God doesn't get to be angry. God somehow is supposed to be beyond anger. He's too big for that. No, no, he's not. He's not. And you don't actually believe that. You actually would be angry if God isn't angry at the same stuff that you're angry at. Like we're okay with God being angry as long as he's not angry at us. Um, and that's a, just a huge blind spot. That's a giant problem that's part of maturity and recognizing that. Uh, God's facts are always right. Whatever God's angry at, he is justified with because his facts are always right. And so when it comes to the gospel, God is angry at my sin. Um, I don't know if, if he's angry with me. I don't know that it matters, but he could be because my sin negatively impacts everybody in my life, including you as the church that I pastor. And God is right to be angry with my sin. Thank God that he is angry with my sin and with your sin and that he doesn't just blow it off and keep letting me and everybody else suffer the consequences from it. Thank God that there is judgment that right and wrong will be discerned, you know? But thank God for the grace of God through Jesus. Thank God that but God being rich in mercy,
because of the great love with which he loved Jeff. Even when Jeff was dead in his trespasses and his sins, that God made Jeff alive together with Christ. For by grace, Jeff has been saved through faith. And that faith was not Jeff's doing. That faith was the gift of God. It wasn't a result of anything that Jeff did so that Jeff might not boast about it. Because Jeff is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that Jeff should walk in them. Like, I've been trying to follow Jesus for an apprentice for 35 years, and the message this morning went deeper, you know, and it needs to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And you never, like, I'm, I'm, I'm on to other stages, like I'm probably on stage five maybe when we get there, but you never grow past stage two because you're always an apprentice and you're always going um, deeper. I, uh, I'm going to finish with a passage that I read earlier this week in Isaiah that stuck out to me in light of this sermon and some stuff earlier in this sermon. And, and so this is a bit of an appeal, and it's an appeal to any of us, you know, a reminder, but it's an appeal if you're new in stage two, but it's an appeal if you're still kind of in stage one. Um, and it just made me think about how the gospel has reshaped my life and reshapes your life. And so this is Isaiah chapter 55. And this is an, an invitation from God. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we, um, we never, we are never done with it. We never grow past it. It just goes deeper and deeper and affects our understanding of you and the love with which you love us. It, it affects our understanding of ourselves and, and it, it should breed in us a humility, God, and just a gratitude for how gracious you have been to us in Christ and in everything else that you've blessed us with in our lives. It shapes our understanding of the people around us and should give us a, a tolerance for, for what they do, understanding that they have the same problem that we do and need the same solution that we do. And so that should just breed a compassion, Lord. And would it, as it starts to do in this stage, Lord, would it continue to shape us into the people that you want us to be, Lord? And would we be more and more grateful each and every day for the grace that you've shown us in Jesus? We love you, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for, uh, Frank, for joining us this morning. I'm really glad that you tuned in. If there's any way we can help you, as I said last week, when you get started in this, and I said today, you need the church. And so if you're new in this stuff, man, you need some fellow apprentices to help you along that path. And we want to do that. You need to, when you come to that recognition of God, get baptized. This is an acknowledgement of who he is and what he's done in your life and doing in your life. And so let us do that. Um, for you. So please get in touch with me and, uh, and we'll hook you up and help you any way that, um, that we can. All right. Love you guys. See you next week.